Welcome to A Hard Look, the Administrative Law Review podcast from the Washington College of Law. We'll discuss how administrative law impacts your daily life, from regulatory actions by agencies and the litigation over them to the balance of power among branches of the government. This is A Hard Look. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Administrative Law Review's A Hard Look. My name is Brendan Stern, and I will be your host today. I am a second-year law student on ALR at American University, Washington College of Law. This episode of A Hard Look is the third in a series of four episodes that are examining the role that racism has historically played in administrative law, the ways that racism still actively pervades the administrative law space, and the ways that practitioners, leaders, scholars, and our listeners can effectuate change. The series was inspired by the Yale Journal of Regulations Symposium on Racism in Administrative Law. A special thank you to Professor Katherine Kovacs for spearheading the symposium and for getting this conversation started. It is with sincere gratitude that I introduce our two guests. First off, we have Professor Carrie Rosenbaum, who is an experienced immigration law attorney, teacher, and scholar. She is a visiting scholar and lecturer at the University of California Berkeley Law Center for the Study of Law and Society and director of the Berkeley Law Immigrant Justice and Climate Refugee Working Group. Her scholarship focuses on the constitutionality of immigration laws, including equality principles and rule of law, the role of settler colonialism in shaping contemporary expressions of immigration law, and racial bias in Crimigration Enforcement. She recently published an article with Yale Journal on Regulation Symposium on Racism in Administrative Law titled Unequal Protection in Administrative Law. You can find the link to this article in the episode notes. Our next guest is Dean Kevin Johnson, who is the Dean, maybe a Paulus Professor of Public Interest Law and Professor of Chicana Chicano Studies at UC Davis Law School. Dean Johnson has published extensively on immigration law and civil rights, including his 1999 book, How Did You Get to Be Mexican? A White-Slash-Brown Man's Search for Identity, which was nominated for the 2000 Robert F. Kennedy Book Award. Dean Johnson is president of the Board of Directors of Legal Services of Northern California and, from 2006 to 2011, served on the Board of Directors of the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund. He is the recipient of many awards and honors, including the National Association of Chicana and Chicano Studies Scholar of the Year Award and the Central American Resource Center Romero Vive Award. He helped organize an amicus brief on behalf of the more than 100 immigration law professors on the lawfulness of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Policy in the Supreme Court in Department of Homeland Security versus Board of Regents of the University of California. Professor Rosenbaum, Dean Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so, Dean Johnson, how do the two of you know each other? Well. Uh, Professor Rosenbaum, uh, I initially met when she was a star law student in UC Davis School of Law, and I was fortunate enough to have her work for me as a, a research assistant. Uh, and actually, she worked with me on, on uh, an article involving discriminations against Arabs and Muslims in the aftermath of September 11th, 2001, which uh, is probably my most cited uh, law review article, and it's all due to Carrie, Carrie, Professor Rosenbaum's hard work. So as we dive into our conversation today, I'd like to ask the two of you, what is the historical relationship between racism and immigration law, and how has it evolved over time? Well, I'll take a, a quick stab at that. Uh, in, in fact, I could um, go on for the rest of the hour about that, I think, because <laughs> in my mind, I'm sure in my mind, I see race is deeply embedded in all of immigration law. Uh, and it's been there from the beginning, and it's there to the present. Uh, we see it currently in President Trump's uh, statement of views about immigrants uh, and his use of racial epithets at various times to talk about immigrants. 
and, and to talk in derogatory, insulting way about uh, immigrants from, from the developing world. Um, but the history starts off really um, in earnest with um, a series of laws passed in the late 1800s uh, known uh, colloquially as the Chinese Exclusion Laws. And they were laws um, generated um, in part by political pressure from the western part of the United States where West, many uh, Chinese immigrants had settled. Uh, and the idea was to exclude future Chinese immigrants from coming to the United States uh, and to fil facilitate the removal of Chinese immigrants who were in this country. Um, those laws were aggressively enforced. Uh, they were surrounded by uh, a lots, incredible amount of uh, political acrimony. Uh, there was violence directed to the Chinese as well as the legal violence uh, under the exclusion laws. Uh, and the Supreme Court, uh, in a case known as the Chinese exclusion case, uh, upheld uh, the, the first and the major uh, comprehensive federal immigration law, which was known as the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, and in upholding the law, uh, the Supreme Court, really out of whole cloth, uh, determined that whatever Congress's judgment was about immigration, it was conclusive on the judiciary. Uh, there was no room for judicial review. Uh, there is no room for determining the constitutionality of the law. Uh, and there was no room for any kind of judicial interference with the immigration decisions of Congress. In this case, the Chinese exclusion case uh, helped to form future immigration laws, basically telling Congress that it had free reign in deciding who to admit and who to exclude from the United States. Uh, and it also um, affected the judicial review uh, by the courts of the laws passed by Congress. Now, one of the fascinating things is uh, the Chinese exclusion case was decided in a time uh, where the Supreme Court embraced uh, an equal protection law known as uh, a doctrine known as the separate but equal doctrine in Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, the, the Chinese exclusion law was, was forged in the same era with the same uh, racial intentions. Um, Plessy was overruled, but the Chinese exclusion case has never been overruled. It remains, as they would say, uh, in law school classrooms, good law. Uh, and the Chinese exclusion case has circumscribed judicial review uh, of all immigration decisions of Congress, but also of the president. Uh, and, and so what we have today is what I would describe as uh, a, a miserly sort of judicial review, if any judicial review. Uh, and we can talk about that more later. Um, but. The, the Chinese exclusion case uh, and its creation of a, a doc doctrine of constitutional immunity, which is often called the plenary power doctrine, that is Congress has plenary power over immigration, uh, that uh, has affected generations of immigration laws. Uh, and not lo that long after uh, the Chinese exclusion acts were passed, uh, there was the national origin uh, quotas system that was passed in 1924 that was designed to keep out um, Southern and Eastern Europeans and to lock in immigration to its predominantly Northern European patterns of the 1890s. Um, and this quota system remained the law until 1965. Uh, so you know, the, the Chinese exclusion case affected the entire trajectory of immigration law and the judicial review of those laws. So, Continuing in that, that strand, the, um, the sort of racism and discrimination that was inherent in the Chinese Exclusion Act and that was essentially sanctioned by the Supreme Court through the Plenary Power Doctrine continued, um, though the evolution was more uh, something that we've come to call colorblind racism, uh, which Ming Su Chen, who also wrote an article in this symposium, references. So... In 1965, the United States uh, Congress repealed the national origin quotas, but then replaced them with a system that uh, not only did not address the historically uneven visa distribution, but reinforced some of the same sorts of problems that were inherent in that system in the first place. And so again, this, this system is just sort of one of those tools in which decisions are made about who is allowed to come and who is allowed to remain 
that appear uh, facially race neutral, where national origin and uh, ethnicity can serve as a proxy for race and have shaped um, our, our systems of admission and deportation, now referred to as removal. Um, the Bracero program in 1942 to 1964 um, was essentially indentured servitude where Mexican workers came to work for American growers. Um, one, histori one historian has, has, one scholar has called this the modern solution to an old colonial problem. That colonial problem being the need for resource extraction and then the solution being the enslavement of native populations before that, subsequently the importation of slaves, um, Chinese laborers and others. And then this, uh, in this current you know, trajectory, the U.S.-Mexican relationship um, evolved such that um, Mexican nationals would volunteer, in quotes, their contract labor, but be excluded from rights and protections of, of others. And at the same time, the United States then and still today has turned a blind eye to a certain extent to unlawful migration and has, in fact, sort of incentivized it, creating these, um, these dual systems of migration, one legal and one not legal, and those who come without permission are subject to more exploitation and are blamed and scapegoated for um, problems perceived as um, socioeconomic caused by migration, but are actually uh, much broader problems that um, are not uh, related whatsoever to uh, the problem of race or national origin of, of those who have been incentivized to come and work. Gotcha. So, uh, Professor Rosenbaum, um, how do you think uh, the travel ban that we've seen in recent years falls in line with everything that you and Dean Johnson uh, just explained? Sure. Well, there, there are a number of, of laws. Essentially, anything that you could trace from the Chinese Exclusion Act until now, as far as regulating immigration, is inherently discriminatory as far as how the, the choices are made. And the Supreme Court has essentially rubber stamped that by saying this plenary power doctrine that Dean Johnson referred to authorizes um, Congress and the executive to have this exceptional authority over immigration decisions. And the plenary power doctrine is rooted in um, national security and sovereignty. The idea that countries can make these decisions about who can come and who can stay. And, as we've seen with uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act and that litigation, as well as Japanese internment, and now the, more recently the travel ban, the national security rationale to exclude particular people from certain countries with respect to the travel ban, uh, people, primarily people from Muslim-majority countries, um, that national security um, rationale has really been um, distorted, I and other scholars would say, and camouflages the racism and bias that, that's the true reason. But then, as we saw with that case, and then the, the census case and the DACA rescission case, the Supreme Court repeatedly, particularly in immigration law and when addressing immigration laws, um, refuses to look at and take seriously um, the equal protection challenge and the inherent racism that that is actually at play. And instead, um, this is where the connection in part between immigration law and admin law intersect. It's the often the Administrative Procedures Act challenge that might be what the Supreme Court decides will um, be the cause to invalidate an immigration law, whereas the equal protection challenge um, continues not to be validated. Um, Dean Johnson, um, do you think that there is a uh, local state government overlap with our uh, federal criminal justice system? Well, when it comes to immigration, uh, the primary pipeline for removals is the state and local criminal justice system. Um, basically, our the, the, both under the Obama administration and also under the Trump administration, the focus in removals has been removing people 
who've been charged with, not necessarily convicted of, uh, various crimes, some minor, some, some major. Um, so I think it's fair to say uh, that the, the current system uh, of state and local criminal justice um, factors in heavily into the modern removals of large numbers of people from the United States. Uh, and one of the issues, and it's a central issue really, uh, is that we, we know that our criminal justice system uh, has racially disparate impacts, that it particularly impacts the African-American and Latino communities. Uh, and when it comes to immigration, uh, what happens is that this disparate, uh, disparately impacting racial criminal justice system uh, leads to a fact that removals uh, each year um, are comprised of about 90% Latino non-citizens. Uh, even though Latinos comprise a much smaller um, component of the overall immigrant population. In, in, in the end, what I would say is that the criminal justice system and its ties to the federal removal process is a, a system uh, that I would call a, a Latinx removal machinery, uh, where the, the you know, facially neutral, colorblind criminal justice system, which we know has racially disparate impacts, contributes to a very skewed uh, set of removal rates uh, that make uh, many uh, Latino immigrants, but also many Latinos, very uncomfortable. Uh, and I think they understand the racial impacts of the removal machinery. Um, and I think that that particular aspect of our removal system uh, is only you know, one of many anti-Latino parts of the overall uh, you know, immigration system in, in, the, in the United States. Uh, we could talk about uh, many, many aspects of it, uh, but the, it's criminal justice system, um, the limits on visas from each country, the per country um, ceilings, uh, create the same visa limits for Iceland, which has very little demand for immigration in the United States, as they do for Mexico, the Philippines, India and China, which have much greater demand for immigration in the United States. Uh, I had a client a few years ago, um, actually he wasn't a client, the State Bar of California was the client. His name was Sergio Garcia, uh, who applied for an immigrant visa in 1994. He was from Mexico, uh, and by the time the California Supreme Court decided his case, saying that an undocumented immigrant could be eligible to practice law, uh, he still had not received his visa, and that was in 2014. Uh, so he's waiting for a visa that he was lawfully eligible for for 20 years. And it was only after he was admitted to the bar uh, that he later got his visa and later became a lawful permanent resident and later became a U.S. citizen. Um, but it, it shows you just the, the impacts that these per-country ceilings have because they make people from certain nations wait for years before they can come to this country. In other nations, they can come tomorrow. Right. Um, so, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to add, add to that as well. Um, Great. With respect to the state and local immigration enforcement system, um, you know, the closest we've gotten to sort of reckoning with the racially disparate impact of that system was uh, when President, former President Obama had rescinded a program called Secure Communities that was primarily responsible for creating this funnel from criminal arrest at the state and local level to deportation. But even Obama had said things like, um, we, we want to deport gangbangers and felons, not families. And so the sort of rhetoric and reinforcement of these ideas of criminalizing Latinx people and people from uh, developing parts of the world is just so incredibly entrenched in every level of our, our rhetoric, our national discourse, our almost implicitly in our, our national identity, um, that it, it sort of infiltrates and is part of um, our legal systems, our enforcement systems, um, our system of um, protection as well, um, political asylum, in order for people to come to this country they have to prove um, that they've suffered past persecution or have a well-founded fear of perse future persecution on account of a protected ground. And many have argued that the idea that fleeing your country because there's general violence and you want to be able to feed your family and create a better life for yourselves 
is um, that the law says that that's not sufficient and that that does not entitle someone to receive protection, whereas um, others would say, well, that, that again reinforces this, this sort of um, bias and, and this discrimination and preference for people from certain parts of the world rather than others, and also disregards the United States' long-standing history of meddling in uh, the national governments and systems in other countries that has in fact led to people fleeing from Central America and other parts of the world. Um, so the, the systems are deep and complicated. They also have roots in um, settler colonialism and the history of um, colonialism itself. And these um, relationships are, are really long-standing and deep. Certainly sounds like that there are a lot of hoops to jump through uh, if you would like to fully become a citizen of the United States. Um, I appreciate both of your insights on that topic. Um, so, Dean Johnson, when I introduced you, I said that you worked on an amicus brief for Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California. Uh, this is famously known as the DACA case. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that experience, please? Oh, sure. Um, well, what, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals policy um, that, that President Obama embraced in, in 2012 uh, was designed to give limited relief uh, to uh, undocumented immigrants who, who came to the United States as children. Uh, and, and one of the questions um, that came up in the the litigation um, uh, when President Trump rescinded the DACA policy was whether uh, DACA was legal or not. Uh, and uh, the claim was made um, by some officials in the Trump administration that, that DACA was unlawful uh, and wasn't consistent with the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is the, the comprehensive immigration statute. Uh, and the, the truth of the matter is, is that deferred action uh, is a kind of prosecutorial discretion exercised by the executive branch in deciding who they want to try to deport and who, if they don't want to deport somebody, who they, they, they let alone. Uh, and the idea um, in, in this program, uh, this policy was um, adopted under the leadership of Janet Napolitano, then Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. The idea was we, we, we don't want to focus on people who are otherwise law-abiding We'd rather focus on people who may be dangerous to public safety uh, and, 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 and security. Um, and, and so the idea was to use the prosecutorial power on those who might pose a risk to society. We might disagree about whether the people that the Obama administration was fo were focusing on really were a risk to society, but that was the rationale. Uh, but deferred action goes back for, for, for many years. Uh, it's been a, a tool used by many administrations, Democratic and Republican, uh, and it was famously used um, um, by, by uh, the immigration bureaucracy in allowing uh, the, the, the rock star John Lennon to remain in the United States, um, even though he had some, some uh, criminal issues in the past. But it's, it's a well-established form of relief, uh, and there is no rationale given by the Trump administration why DACA w was unlawful. Uh, there was no reasoned analysis. There was no memorandum. Uh, there was uh, some campaign slogans, more or less, um, mentioned by the president and also by the Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And so um, immigration law professors, we, we, uh, we do pay attention to the law. Uh, and when the case made its way to the Supreme Court, uh, we thought it was very important to make it clear that uh, at least as to whether or not DACA was legal, uh, we were of one view that it was within the power uh, of, of the president and the executive branch, that it was a carefully refined system that individually looked at the applications and decided applications uh, and was a fair use of the executive branch's limited prosecutorial discretion. Um, I found the experience, I worked with uh, uh, Shoba Wadia and Michael Olivas, uh, Shoba's at Penn State, and Michael's it, it, uh, now retired, he was at the University of Houston Law Center. Uh, and we, we uh, sort of worked with a, a law firm, and then we were able to um, 
get a brief and get uh, over 100 immigration law professors to sign on to it. Uh, it wasn't a particularly controversial issue, uh, although DACA is a larger controversial policy. Um, but the question about DACA's legality was a pretty easy sell to most immigration law professors. Uh, and the Supreme Court, when it addressed uh, the rescission of DACA, um, never addressed the question whether or not uh, DACA was unlawful or not. Uh, basically said the administration had not explained uh, why DACA might be unlawful and didn't give a re recent explanation why the rescission was going to take place. So in some ways, we, the, the immigration law professors, I think, uh, chased away the court from addressing the, the lawfulness of DACA uh, and addressing some of the other issues. But maybe that's a grandiose view by a uh, law professor who thinks too highly of himself. <laughs> uh, so, Professor Rosenbaum, as far as the equal protection claim was brought, can you tell us how that worked out or maybe didn't work out? Sure, <clears throat> absolutely. As I mentioned earlier, the equal protection challenges to immigration laws um, are sparse and have not been particularly successful. Instead, um, just as was the case here in addressing the rescission of DACA, the plurality um, decided that the rescission was unlawful because of the Administrative Procedure Act challenge and did not want to explore or consider the equal protection challenge. So in determining whether um, a disproportionate impact would rise to the level of actionable discrimination pursuant to equal protection standards um, in the region's case, this DACA rescission case, the Supreme Court relied on a 1977 case um, called Arlington Heights versus Metropolitan Housing Development Corporation. And that was actually, as the, the name of the case might suggest, a housing law case, so not an immigration law case, but it importantly dealt with um, the intent doctrine and equal protection. So when there is a challenge to a facially race-neutral law, the court, um, according to the, the way in which the equal, protect, equal protection intent doctrine has evolved, has to look to essentially the effect of, or the intent of the lawmakers. Um, it's not enough um, pursuant to um, Arlington Heights and subsequent law. Um, and interpretations, it's, it's not sufficient that the ultimate effect of a policy like this DACA rescission was racially discriminatory. There has to be proof of the government or state actor who was responsible for the particular act uh, that they held discriminatory intent as well. And that's really where uh, these cases uh, kind of fall apart because the uh, adjudicators are essentially asked to purse the mind of the individual and that, that specific individual who made the determination. So the plurality relied on this rationale to find that the plaintiffs, the DACA recipients, did not raise a plausible inference of invidious discriminatory purpose and that, that was not, um, there was not enough evidence to show that that was a motivating factor. Um, some of the, the factors that the Arlington Heights court came up with that um, this particular court considered was um, the disparate impact on the particular group, and here Latinos or Latinx persons primarily from Mexico, uh, the pre and post election statements by um, Donald Trump. Um, though the court largely disregarded the extensive history of the discrimination against Latinos and people of Mexican descent um, that was described by the DACA holders. So, what um, Dean Johnson and I have been describing to you as far as the, the way in which um, national origin discrimination has served and language discrimination have served as a proxy for race is something that is deeply entrenched in our system of immigration laws. And um, I believe it was the Maldef Council amicus brief was uh, incredibly detailed and gave a, a very complex um, presentation of this this history, particularly with respect to um, immigrants from Mexico and people of Mexican descent. And the court um, was not interested in those arguments or that history whatsoever. Um, so ultimately, um, the, the rationale um, 
according to the plurality as authored by Robert said that um, in part, even though it was uh, depending on whose numbers you looked at, either 78% or 93% of the people impacted were uh, Latinx um, persons, uh, the decision <laughs> indicated that uh, one of the reasons not to um, explore the equal protection claim further was that virtually any generally applicable, meaning facially neutral, immigration policy could be challenged on equal protection grounds if rescission of DACA disparately targeted Latinx persons. Um, if that was evidence of discrimination, then you know, our whole system could therefore be challenged. And um, instead of sort of probing that a bit further <laughs> to what I would suggest is a logical outcome, that yes, in fact, that, that may indeed be true. Perhaps at a deep level, there, there are problems with um, more than just the DACA rescission. Um, the court used that to shut down the inquiry. Um, second, the court summarily dismissed the history leading up to the, the, to the rescission as far as the procedures and policies and everything surrounding that. Um, and perhaps most notably, um, with respect to the unwillingness to attribute the president's anti-Latinx statements with the DHS secretary's decision to rescind DACA. So all of those comments were um, just simply not attributed to the, the individual, um, the cabinet level individual executive authority uh, who made that decision. And the contemporary statements, the, the statements that um, Trump had made um, were deemed not to be close enough in time to the rescission of DACA. Um, Justice Sotomayor um, said essentially the same thing in this case as she did in the Trump, the Hawaii case, um, the the travel ban case. Um, disagreeing. Trump, with, Trump versus Hawaii. Yes, Trump versus okay. Hawaii. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, dis so she disagreed with the plurality, um, stating that. There was nothing that suggested that the campaign and other statements were remote in time from these later enacted policies. Um, and uh, she suggested that the only way that the plurality could suggest that um, the uh, th that there was no um, discriminatory motive was to sort of cherry pick and, and ignore um, the broad context and all of the evidence um, at play. And uh, this was equally true um, in, in the Hawaii case, though in that case, the court also um, sort of evoked the plenary power doctrine to suggest that national security was at issue. Um, that rationale um, was not relevant here, but ultimately um, the court did not want to explore that challenge. And um, just I'd like to add that in addition to not even being willing to recognize the possibility that there was an indication that there was a discriminatory motive or intent, um, even if that part of the intent doctrine test were met, then the court could have also said, and essentially did say, there could still be a non-discriminatory motive. So even if um, there is perhaps discrimination that is deemed to be found or discriminatory intent, if there's also or alternatively a non-discriminatory explanation, then the equal protection challenge has to fail. So it's it's effectively designed to fail. And uh, in looking at immigration law, there's already this sort of barrier with the plenary power doctrine to the court giving any sort of serious judicial review to a question of constitutional rights, uh, including uh, discrimination challenges, and then in comes the Equal Protection Intent Doctrine that has its own set of barriers in the way the test has evolved to almost ensure that such a claim um, cannot prevail. So it, it seems like when we try to talk about immigration cases in the context of administrative technicalities, we ignore a major aspect of these cases, which is race. Uh, that being said, what role does critical race theory play in the way administrative cases are decided? Well, I, I think critical race theory uh, suggests that we should um, apply ordinary modes of constitutional review to the immigration laws as well as any other law, uh, and that we should consider the racial impacts uh, in doing the constitutional analysis uh, and in doing the statutory analysis. 
Now, I, I think some of what we've been talking about really can be traced back to the, the, the old uh, war horse, the Chinese exclusion case, is that that leads to very narrow review of any immigration decisions. Uh, for example, in um, the travel ban case, Trump versus Hawaii, uh, it re leads to very odd um, uh, equal protection evaluation in uh, the, the, the DACA case. Uh, it leads to no judicial review uh, in the latest decision on expedited review, Thurasquim, um, in, in, where the, the Supreme Court explicitly relies on cases that build on the Chinese exclusion case uh, to deny any review uh, of a removal decision of an asylum applicant who is apprehended in the United States, in U.S. territory. Previously, it had been thought that if you were apprehended in the United States, you had due process rights. Um, but no, uh, according to some precedent based on the Chinese exclusion case, no, you don't have any due process rights. You can be removed without a hearing, without an appearance before an immigration judge, without presenting evidence, um, without having your claim evaluated, except in the most uh, um, uh, perfunctory way by, by a border enforcement officer. Uh, so I, I think all these cases um, that, that lead to the result of no judicial review allow race to become embedded in the law and make it incredibly difficult to ferret it out. And I think part of what critical race scholars have done in looking at immigration law is try to make clear how these facially neutral laws really do have racial impacts. Uh, and we should look at those impacts and consider those impacts and not bury those impacts. Uh, and it is not always easy to do because if you read uh, the DACA decision, uh, you'll think, oh, that's not so much about race. Um, but you look a little more carefully and you see, gosh, 90% of the people removed are Latino. Um, and every criminal removal case raises the same specter of, of racial discrimination in play. Uh, and, and so I, I, I think what the critical race theorists have done uh, and it have it, been to uh, show, uh, put in the mirror, uh, the racial impacts of colorblind immigration policies. Uh, and um, it, it's been incredibly difficult because many people would rather say, well, what does um, uh, you know, the, the Section 208 on asylum mean and how do we apply it uh, and not look at the overall impacts uh, oh gosh, it's it's um, um, you know ninety percent of Latinos apply for asylum and denied, uh, and not looking at the racial impacts of how those statutes are applied, uh, and, and so I I do think that uh, over the last 25, 30 years there's been an increasing analysis of race uh, in immigration scholarship, a lot by critical race theory scholars, but also some by immigration scholars as well, uh, and so it's it, it is now at least acceptable, uh, and it wasn't acceptable probably in 1990 to say, gosh, the immigration laws are racist. Uh, now it's you know acceptable. And maybe one of the benefits of a President Trump in office is that we can see uh, the racial justifications, and he uses them at times, uh, for immigration policies. Um, he, he talks about denying a temporary protected status to Salvadorans and Haitians because uh, they're from Esol countries. Uh, he talks about um, Mexicans and his, his campaign kickoff is criminals and rapists. Uh, and he's kind of uh, sort of um, pulled the shade and allowed us to see uh, the racial basis for some of his policy decisions in a way that um, no other president in modern United States history has. So, so I do think that um, things are changing. Uh, critical race theorists are 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 are. are making us look at these issues, but I also think, and this is very important, that political activists, including immigrant activists, are, are very much involved now. Uh, they're not, as President Bush would suggest, hiding in the shadows. They're out in the streets protesting. And they're not, they're not just asking for an amendment to uh, provisions of, of the immigration statute. Uh, they're asking for things like abolish ICE. Uh, and we want comprehensive immigration reform, and we want justice for immigrants, uh, and we want racial justice. That's part of what they're saying. Uh, so, so I think um, you know all of these things are acting together to make race more prominent 
in, in, in the analysis of immigration law. And I think that's a good thing. So from what I've gathered from what you have explained during our conversation, as, as well as Professor Rosenbaum, the United States has a lot of work to do. So where do we go from here? What can lawyers and lawmakers do to push for systemic change that we so desperately need? I would suggest that we continue doing exactly what Dean Johnson has said in terms of um, continuing to pursue these discussions. It, it was um, certainly the, the clarity with which the Trump administration has enacted policies um, with racism uh, just so clearly being the, the motivating force that activists and scholars and others have have spoken more loudly and clearly in addressing some of these issues, though certainly, as many have also recognized, um, the problems with ICE and Customs and Border Protection and imprisoning um, families and, and not families at the southern border merely because people are trying to come and seek protection, all of these problems have been longstanding. And it's not this president um, who created all of this. He's just sort of made it more apparent. And so I think to remember that this isn't just a, a Trump problem and that the, the calls to abolish immigration prisons, to which I would largely credit um, Cesar Garcia Hernandez uh, at the University of Denver, uh, and, and many others who are on the activist front, um, these, the calls to make these great systemic changes um, need to um, sort of continue in the discourse and the conversation. And scholars who may not consider themselves critical race scholars um, will hopefully consider um, the, the history and the politics surrounding whatever laws it is that they're studying. And, and I have noticed that more and more um, professors teaching um, 1L courses are considering um, critical race theory in their approaches to how they present their material. So, you know, contracts law, civil procedure, um, none of it is divorced from the question of race and discrimination and uh, our country's history and our legal and political system. So, um, I think that's sort of one of the, the key components is not to stop um, having these conversations when uh, we have a new president who uh, is a Democrat, uh, President Biden, incoming. Um, and other than that, um, you know, we need to continue to press um, those in power um, to make changes, and those changes should be at every level. Um, you know, theoretically, it would be wonderful if uh, Democrats had Congress and the executive and expanded the court and cloned Justice Sotomayor and just filled all those seats with more Justice <laughs> Sotomayors. And then uh, perhaps we would make some, some real change. But in all seriousness, um, the conversations and the changes need to happen in every, every part of our um, legal and political system. So, Dean Johnson, um, Professor Rosenbaum brought up that professors are, are now considering teaching their students critical race theory. Um, is there any specific steps that law students or law professors can take to improve their knowledge on this racism and immigration situation? Well, I, I do think that, uh, unfortunately, uh, many Americans haven't educated themselves about immigration and how it operates. Uh, I, I think that um, it's amazing to some people when they get any exposure to the uh, immigration court system, uh, which has judges uh, and, and courts that are funded like traffic courts, but decide the life and death of many people and have workloads that are beyond any uh, imaginable uh, competent judge to, to handle. Uh, I, I do encourage students who are interested in learning about the immigration system uh, to think about, uh, think about it before law school uh, and think about going to a place that has a, a clinical program where students can get experience in immigration um, and to represent real people with real problems in real time uh, who need real help. Uh, and I think uh, one of the, the things that a, 
I think our students benefit from uh, is being able to represent immigrant clients in all kinds of different cases, uh, from asylum to cancellation of removal uh, to naturalization petitions, uh, and also to, to be able to uh, participate in Know Your Rights sessions for immigrant communities who are uh, currently quite fearful of the possibilities for removal and quite fearful of the, uh, filing a naturalization petition um, because they, they don't want, they, they think they might end up getting deported. Uh, so, so I think if, if you go to one of those uh, Know Your Rights sessions, uh, you realize just how much our immigration laws and policies touch real human lives uh, and um, make people miserable, uh, make them terrified, make them scared, make them cry, uh, make them not want to be a part of a society that needs them uh, and they've contributed to. Um, so, so I'd encourage students to, to try to educate themselves about uh, the, the, the work that's being done through clinics, uh, through their, their churches, through their community groups, uh, because uh, help is needed and volunteers are, are very much cherished. All right. Um, this has been an excellent conversation. Uh, as we bring it to an end, do either of you two have any final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners today? I think just one small note, um, something that Dean Johnson's written about extensively too, just to kind of build on what he was suggesting about the importance of considering who's impacted. Um, in addition to immigrants and their families, um, May and I uh, used a phrase that has long stuck with me, um, alien citizen, which suggests that for many people who've historically been racialized through our immigration system, um, particularly Latinx persons, and as we've seen with the coronavirus, people who are, who are assumed to be or who are of Chinese descent, even once um, people from those communities become U.S. citizens, the second-class status and the discrimination uh, persists. And so this is, this is a problem that um, affects so many people, and uh, you know, we're, we're really all responsible for understanding and attempting to uh, make changes. I think Professor Rosenbaum is exactly right. Uh, there's not a bright line between a Mexican-American citizen and a Mexican immigrant in the eyes of the Immigration Enforcement Authorities of the United States government. Uh, and various immigration policies uh, and, and um, um, enforcement measures um, uh, lead to racial profiling of Latinos, uh, which can impact citizens as well as, well as immigrants. Uh, and we had a, a, a well-known sheriff in Arizona uh, who used the criminal justice system to, to uh, enforce the immigration laws and had huge impacts on, on, on the, the, the U.S. citizen community of, of Mexican ancestry that led to a federal injunction uh, stopping him from, from, from conducting those activities. So I, I think uh, we, we have to be we're, uh, attentive to the fact uh, that these immigration and race issues are part of a larger civil rights uh, set of issues that this nation faces. Uh, and it, they, it, for, for particular communities, uh, they, it's not easy to, to, stop, you know, to separate the immigration from the civil rights and the civil rights from the immigration. They're deeply intertwined. Uh, and, and I do think uh, the, the other point I, I'd make as well is, um, in, in it's implicit in, in Professor Rosenbaum's comments, is that uh, Republican administrations uh, can be good on immigration and Democratic administrations can be bad on immigration. Uh, it's not necessarily a Democrat-Republican issue. And President Obama set records for the numbers of removals of non-citizens from the country year in and year out. Uh, he left office with some people refer, referring to him as the deporter-in-chief. Uh, and if people are interested in changes to the immigration system, um, they shouldn't uh, you know, turn off the engines just because there's a, a Democrat who's been elected to president. Uh, this is going to be a long uh, discussion, a long dialogue, uh, and I would think a long struggle to try to eliminate as best we can some of the, the race racism embedded in our immigration system. And it's not just going to happen because uh, a couple of political leaders who are um, Democrats are elected. It's going to happen because of struggle 
and push uh, and political action. So this is an issue that goes well beyond party lines. This is an issue that's going to take a lot of hard work. Uh, Professor Rosenbaum, do you have a closing remark? Sure. I just wanted to add to that, that um, in addition to remembering that immigration law is not just a question of who is called a non-citizen or um, who lacks legal status, but beyond that, and looking at this question um, of discrimination and, and treatment of people in the United States and society at every level, um, you know, it's it's the question of social and economic justice that has been a big driving force for the demonization of immigrants and people perceived to be immigrants um, who are sort of permanently kept out of of the American polity in certain respects. And so appreciating the fact that this isn't just an immigration issue or even just a civil rights issue, um, but understanding the way in which the reality and rhetoric of radical um, socioeconomic disparities that continue to keep growing um, add fuel to this fire and allow the scapegoating to continue. And so um, looking at the, the real causes of um, legitimate discontent in the United States is really critical to understanding the immigration issue, the civil rights issue, and how all of these work together. Well, I would like to thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, once again, this episode of A Hard Look is the third in a series of four episodes that are examining the role of racism in administrative law. You can find the rest of the episodes of the series wherever you get your podcasts and at administrativelawreview.org. Thank you again to Professor Catherine Kovacs and the Yale Journal of Regulation for its Symposium on Racism in Administrative Law. We would also like to extend a thank you to the ABA Administrative Law Section, ALR's Executive Board and Staffers, Sharon Wolf, Professor Jill Olmsted, and Professor Andy Popper. Lastly, thank you to Shabir Hamid for editing this episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and the ALR website. We would appreciate it if you could like, rate, and subscribe. If you would like to be a guest on the episode or have any comments or questions, please email them to sarah at alr-sr-tech-editor at wcl.american.edu. The email will also be in the episode notes, along with any links referenced in this episode and the bios for our guests. Thank you again so much for listening. I am your host, Brendan Stern, and this has been A Hard Look. Mm-hmm.